This is the Down East EM Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Down East EM Podcast. And thank you for joining us today for our discussion, Closing the Floodgates, Management of Uterine Bleeding in the Emergency Department. I think this is a underrepresented topic probably for two reasons. One, if you remember our discussion with Matt Delaney about sexy topic syndrome, foam collectively tends to go toward the critical care, toward the eye-catching, the very interesting topics, cardiogenic shock, sepsis, things like that. Core content is collectively underrepresented in foam, and there are many out there that are trying to combat that. We are part of that movement, I think, as well. So not only is you know uterine bleeding bread and butter core content stuff for emergency medicine, but I think it's just collectively not talked about as much as it should be in our training of our trainees or residents and collectively not discussed at the level it should be. Probably most often because these patients generally are stable. A lot of the uterine bleeding that you're going to see are stable patients that don't require a lot of active thought, a lot of moment-to-moment decision-making. But when they do, when these patients are sick, they're sick. And it's not that time to be going to your ACOG recommendations on uterine bleeding. We need to know this like the back of our hand for when the really sick either postpartum patient comes in or the hemodynamically unstable uterine bleeding patient comes in. We need to be ready for that. And that's why this topic is important. So thank you for joining us for this discussion. So as we go into this, we've got to talk about what we're going to talk about. What is our outline for today? So we sort of lead with some tools. We want to know what kind of arrows we have in our quiver before these patients come in. So we have a mental framework there. We're going to talk very briefly about an anatomy or mental approach to these types of patients. And then we're going to dive into the non-pregnant, hemodynamically unstable patient and how to treat and manage them. We'll touch very briefly on the hemodynamically stable. Those are really not emergency department patients. And then we're going to go into the postpartum hemorrhage. So here we go. Okay, tools in our toolbox, arrows in our quiver, as I just said. We have several medications, some of which are hormones. We also have a few procedures. So let's just outline what they are, and we'll do a little bit of a review there. So estrogen is the first on this list. This is one of our hormones going back to medical school and mechanism of action. Estrogen is kind of the growth of the endometrium hormone. It promotes endometrial growth, but in doing so, it also adds certain factors that provide stability to it. So if during a normal cycle, estrogen levels will rise, it will increase the juiciness and the blood flow to the endometrium. Eventually, it does outgrow its own blood supply and precipitate menses, but the estrogen hormone also produces stabilizing sort of lysosomal membrane stabilization things, improves or increases the amount of ground substance formation. It creates a strong, healthy, stable endometrium. And then comes progesterone. So progesterone converts the endometrium to the secretory phase in the normal cycle, and it kind of prepares the uterus for implantation. Now, in a typical ovulatory cycle, menstruation can actually kind of be thought of as a progesterone withdrawal occurrence. Menstruation is induced by precipitous declines in progesterone. And then in cases of anovulatory cycles where there is no corpus luteum being made by the ovary, progesterone levels may be too low. So in those two circumstances, having slightly higher levels of progesterone can stabilize the endometrium. And then next on that list is TXA, transexemic acid. This is a very cheap drug that has a lot of press recently, especially in pregnant women, postpartum women. We'll dive into that. But mechanistically, it prevents fibrin degradation. It binds to plasmin and prevents the clot from being degraded. Blood products, 
This is obvious. Packed red blood cells, platelets, plasma. No need to explain what those guys are. You guys know that stuff well. And then procedures. So there's a couple procedures here. Uh, most importantly, we're going to be talking about tamponade type procedures, and we'll go into the details there, but uterine tamponade and removal of products of conception are the two that we're considering. Okay, so some thoughts on etiology. There's such a broad verse here that we can really only have some general thoughts on this. So the first and important question to ask yourself, obviously, is how old is the person that's presenting to me with significant uterine bleeding? Are they pre- or postmenopausal? Are they possibly pregnant? Could they be pregnant? Those are considerations. So within that, in considering age, you know, first presentation of coagulopathy is definitely something we have to consider in our younger patients. Patients with menarche are in their early, you know, cycles of menstruation who present with significant bleeding. We always have to consider that this is the first presentation of an as-yet-undiagnosed coagulopathy, the most common of which would be von Willebrand's disease. Then we have to consider anticoagulation. Is this something that has been done to the patient? Are they on anticoagulants? And again, age is going to come into play. This is going to be seen more commonly in our older patients. And as the number of and indications for anticoagulation continues to expand, any adult woman presenting with uterine bleeding should be asked about anticoagulant use. And then finally, fibroids should always be considered in cases. You know, these fibroids can bleed on their own spontaneously, but they also can outgrow their own blood supply and have some necrotic tissue with bleeding. So after the stabilization of the unstable patient, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, or ACOG, recommends an assessment for the cause of bleeding by use of the Palm-Cohen system, P-A-L-M-C-O-E-I-N. It is a complex, complicated system best used by the OBGYNs themselves, but we should mention that here as we talk about thoughts on etiology, there's a system and an acronym in place if you so choose to use it. Okay, so let's start with the non-pregnant patient, and we're going to start with the unstable. So in the hemodynamically unstable patient, generally the emergency physician knows what to do. We are the super docs here. What do we do? We stabilize the patients. We put in two large bore IVs, 16 gauges, two garden hoses. We assess and procure the airway as needed, and we give blood and blood products. We're transfusing RBCs, FFP, and platelets. And you know, while a lot of the data in this area has come out of the trauma literature, this is a situation, depending on how sick your patient is, where you may be initiating a massive transfusion protocol, right? A patient who is experiencing a hemorrhagic shock doesn't have to be from trauma. Uterine bleeding leading to hemorrhagic shock is a case where you may be instituting massive transfusion. And from what we've seen out of the trauma literature, most specifically the proper trial, the one-to-one-to-one ratio of RBCs, platelets, and plasma is the way to go. So then after we start replacing losses, right, we're getting our IV access, we're securing airway, we're doing our stabilization there, we're giving blood and blood products for the losses that patients are experiencing, We have to talk about source control here, just as we do in a trauma situation. And in the case of abnormal or significant excess of uterine bleeding, what we're really talking about is uterine tamponade as a means to decrease and minimize our losses while we institute these replacements. So while uterine tamponade can be achieved in a few different manners and ways, the easiest one in my mind is the following. You're going to be doing a speculum pelvic exam. You're going to be sterilizing the cervix with whatever you have. Iodine applicators would be great because you do have to grab the cervix with a single tooth forceps to help stabilize it. While you place and advance a 30cc Foley through the cervix, 
into the uterus and inflate to slight resistance. By doing so, we are theoretically creating a confined space to allow a tamponade of its own in the uterus. There is slight backflow possibly through the fallopian tubes, but the cervix is definitely the major means of egress from the uterus. So we are tamponading this to decrease and minimize flow while we work again on replacing things and finding ways to decrease the amount of bleeding that's occurring. So onto that topic, after we have established our IVs, we've done our ABCs or our CABs realistically in this bleeding patient. We have to focus on circulation first. We have blood products hung. We have some source control probably. We have to turn then to medications to help decrease our losses. And really there's kind of two medical options here in the acutely hemorrhaging, hemodynamically unstable patient. They include estrogen and TXA. So let's go into estrogen first. High-dose estrogen is considered really the first-line medication in the treatment, I guess, beside blood, blood products, in the patient with significant uterine bleeding. So most of the commonly cited literature showing efficacy of estrogen in these situations actually comes from a pretty small study from 1982 where 34 patients, they were randomly assigned to receive either Premarin, which is estrogen, or placebo. The Premarin was 25 milligrams in a 5 ml syringe that was given over two minutes. Now, during the study, they found no different in the bleeding cessation rate up to the three-hour mark. They checked women every few hours. But at the five-hour mark, there was a significant decrease in the bleeding rate in the women who had received Premarin, which was 72% cessation rate, versus placebo, which was 38%. Now, these times were monitored the three-hour and five-hour mark. These were the times that were chosen because these were the times when repeat doses were given. So from this study, Premarin, or technically I should be calling it conjugated equine estrogen, but in the United States, there's only one trade name, it's Premarin, at doses of 25 milligrams in a 5 ml syringe given over two minutes, was approved and is used for significant uterine bleeding. And it is the only FDA-approved drug for this indication of acute uterine bleeding. Now, we do have to put a flashing warning here significantly or talk about the fact that there are significant side effects with the administration of estrogen. Premarin, or conjugated equine estrogen, carries a significant risk of thrombosis. So the contraindications then include things like breast cancer, active or past venous thrombosis, including DVTPE, or arterial thromboembolic disease. They also include things like liver disease or dysfunction, and it should be kind of used in caution with patients with cardiovascular or thromboembolic risk factors without history of them. So these warnings and risks obviously have to be taken with a grain of salt. You have to look at the patient in front of you, think about their mortality from the amount of bleeding that they're experiencing in your department, in your room, in your hands. That said, you have to be able to think quickly. And so you should recognize the true contraindications again include breast cancer, active or past, venous thrombosis or arterial thromboembolic disease and liver disease or dysfunction. They should be using caution again with people with cardiovascular or thromboembolic risk factors. Okay, TXA. TXA is the next agent we're going to talk about. Again, this is a fibrin stabilizing agent. It's been proven to save lives in the postpartum period. We're going to talk about that in a second. But it also is used in patients with chronic abnormal uterine bleeding. So in cases of significant blood loss leading to instability of the patient or the needs for significant blood products, TXA may help stabilize the thrombosis and decrease and prevent 
further losses. So a lot of data and literature in the trauma world regarding TXA. We have some information and data about the postpartum hemorrhage, but outside of that trauma and postpartum period, we don't have great data to support it. It is generally a cheap drug, generally safe without a thrombotic risk factor, but no, that is not specifically studied or supported as yet. Okay, so that was the unstable patient, right? What is our approach? We're the super doc. We do our stabilization. We take care and resuscitate. We obtain two garden hose IVs so that we can resuscitate our patients. We assess the airway and procure it as needed, and we give blood and blood products in a one-to-one-to-one fashion following the proper trial. We also consider source control with uterine tamponade, the easiest being a placement of a Foley catheter, 30 cc's, through the cervix into the uterus to create a tamponade environment, and then we treat them medically. Medical treatments here include estrogen, premarin in the United States, and possibly TXA. How about the stable patient? What are we going to do in the stable patient? Well, first, I want you to sit back, relax, have a cup of coffee, and be thankful that this patient is stable. You can, if you want to bother them, and depending on the time of day, ask your OBGYN about what they prefer and how they would approach it. Or you can start OCPs, oral contraceptive pills. Now, these can be a combined oral contraceptive pill, including estrogen and progesterone, again, considering the prothrombotic risk of estrogen. Or you could use a progesterone-only formulation, a common one being the medroxy progesterone acetate. But those are your two options. But generally pretty easy and straightforward. You can ask your OBGYN. You can start the OCP without asking. And the only question you have to ask yourself is, should this patient receive estrogen or should they not? Okay, on to postpartum hemorrhage. Now, postpartum hemorrhage, this is a real deal disease. It has the claim to fame of being at the top, the number one cause of the peripartum maternal death. And that's not something we want to happen, right? We don't want a woman dying before or just after delivering a child. So postpartum hemorrhage is a scary disease process. It's one that is well-respected and one that has been investigated with some pretty good data out there. Now, the reason why there is a fair amount of postpartum hemorrhage, if you think about it, right up to delivery of the fetus, it is being fed with a pretty significant blood supply. The uterine artery blood flow is about 500 to 700 mLs a minute up to delivery. The female body then has the lofty task of stopping blood flow to the placenta, separating the placenta from the uterus, and smushing down on that uterus as hard as it can to prevent further losses after delivery. And this transition has to happen quickly, right? It has to go from 60 miles an hour, 500 to 700 mLs of blood flow through the uterine artery to no flow at all quickly. And you can see where that sometimes falls short, and there's room for significant blood loss. Okay, so how does the female body stop this deluge of blood? How do they control things and get hemostasis? Really kind of two things. Contraction of the myometrium, which is the uterine musculature, right? And release of local hemostatic factors, local local clotting factors. So really, in the vast majority of cases of these things that are happening, myometrial contraction and local hemostatic factors, where do problems arise Well, it's a lack or insufficient myometrial contraction that plays a role, and uterine atony is definitely by far the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage. Now, other possible causes include things like retained placental fragments, the placenta not pulling away all the way, 
There could be actually abnormal placental attachment or implantation with things like placenta accreta. And then uterine injury, laceration, certainly with its own risk factors of things like, you know, instrumentation, induction of labor, causing trauma to the uterus. Those are other things that can happen. But no, by far the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage is uterine atony. And for those of you who like to go back and remember a little bit of med school, helps you feel like you're bringing back old memories. The definition of postpartum hemorrhage is a blood loss of greater than 500 mLs in a vaginal delivery and greater than 1 liter, 1,000 mLs in a C-section within the first 24 hours. And that is primary postpartum hemorrhage. That's what we're really going to be considering and treating ourselves. Primary postpartum hemorrhage within the first 24 hours. Secondary postpartum hemorrhage occurs after the first 24 hours, not really in our wheelhouse. All right, so treatment. Treatment options for postpartum hemorrhage. The basics of postpartum care include things like uterine massage. This actually helps increase myometrial contraction and organized contraction. And then after this, it's sort of an escalating medication or medical management that we're going to go into. Okay, so the medical management for postpartum hemorrhage, what are the medicines we're working with going back? What are the arrows in our quiver? The first thing we're going to be discussing then would be oxytocin, which is an oxytotic agent. Oxytotic meaning uterine contraction, increasing the contraction of the uterus. This is actually often used routinely as a drug that is given after delivery of the placenta to help decrease the amount of bleeding that occurs for the mom. It's done even before postpartum hemorrhage is diagnosed, oftentimes. And it has been shown in the literature to decrease the risk of progression towards postpartum hemorrhage when combined with a more active approach to the management of the third stage of labor, remembering that the third stage of labor is the delivery of the placenta and after. So how do we give or use this drug? It can be given either as a 10-unit intramuscular administration or a 10 to 40 unit infusion put into a crystalloid bag. This medication is not used as an IV push. Now, higher doses are sometimes used up to, you know, 80 units in a 500 cc bag type situation, but know that that may not have a higher efficacy than the standard 10 to 40 unit given either intramuscularly or as an infusion. The next medicine that you could consider would be carboprost. Carboprost is a prostaglandin analog. And remember that these medications or this class of medicine increases contractility of smooth muscle. Know that the uterus is a smooth muscle organ, so tone will increase with its administration. And it is used as a 250 microgram dose given IM, and it can be uh, repeated up to around a 2 milligram total dose. Now, as we get into these treatments of the postpartum hemorrhage patient, we do have to think about, again, our medications and their contraindications. Carboprost being a medication that increases the tone of smooth muscles would have a contraindication of severe asthma. All right, next on the list there is methyl ergonovine, which is an awesome medicine to say. Methyl ergonovine. Didn't have to practice that. Just came off the tongue easily. Now, this is an ergot derivative, uh, so it increases the tone of the contractions of the uterus. Dosing for this medicine is a 0.2 milligram dose, also given IM. And being in the ergot family, some of the contraindications here are going to be slightly different, which are usually cardiovascular, if you remember that. So they would be significant hypertension, coronary artery, or other arterial vascular occlusive diseases, such as CVA or Raynaud's. And then finally, our old buddy TXA, transexemic acid. As you can tell, I love this medicine. I use it a lot topically, actually, for epistaxis and 
superficial bleeding varicoses, things like that. But TXA, obviously, as we said, has been shown to be quite efficacious in the trauma patients. Remember, in that regard, its efficacy is highest within the first hour. It has a still has a mortality improvement or benefit up to three hours in the acutely traumatic patient. But it's also been used for other indications, including postpartum hemorrhage. So the most recent study would be the WOMAN study or trial that was published in Lancet in 2017. Now, in this international randomized trial, which was done across 21 countries, women with postpartum hemorrhage were given either one gram of TXA as an infusion or saline. And the data here was similar to what we see in trauma. It showed a statistically significant decrease in mortality, especially if the drug is given within the first three hours of hemorrhage. 1.2 in the TXA group versus 1.7 in the saline group, creating a relative risk of 0.69. All right, so let's go over that list again, sort of top to bottom real quick, just so we have them in our mind. Oxytocin is a uterine tonic agent used commonly actually for the prevention of postpartum hemorrhage. It is given either 10 milligrams IM or 10 to 40 milligrams given as an infusion. Next is carboprost, which is a prostaglandin analog. It's 250 micrograms given IM up to 2 milligrams and has a contraindication of severe asthma. Methyl ergonovine, which is an ergot derivative given as a 0.2 milligram IM dose with a contraindication of arterial occlusion diseases such as coronary artery disease, CVA, or Raynaud's. And then transexemic acid, or TXA, a clot-stabilizing agent given as a 1-gram dose, best if used within the first three hours of hemorrhage. Now know that there are other agents that are used in the postpartum hemorrhage patient, but these are the ones that are commonly seen in the list, ones that I found easily to remember as a different agents from different classes with different effects. If you want to see other ones and see the list, please check out the show notes, do some research on your own, certainly. But these are the guys that I would remember. Of course, in postpartum hemorrhage, like in many aspects of medicine, there's a medical management and there is a procedural management. No different here. So the procedures that we're going to be considering are laceration repair. Now, lacerations to the cervix and the perineal area occur and are not infrequent, more common in large babies, precipitous deliveries, things like that. But suturing and repairing these lacerations can often decrease the amount of bleeding significantly. And in these lacerations, you can either be doing reapproximation and repair of the laceration itself or hemostatic sutures such as a figure of eight. Now, uterine tamponade is an, a procedure that is also considered here as it is in the non-pregnant patient. But again, remember that uterine atony is the primary cause, the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage. So containing blood within a uterus that just held a baby that is loose, that's floppy, that's enlarged, is probably not going to be ideal. It may not prevent significant losses. You, the uterus that is there can contain a significant quantity of blood and will unlikely have a significant tamponade effect. That said, it's a procedure that can be done and patients at risk for significant or expected continued bleeding should have source control via this as well. And then finally, consideration for persistent or retained products. So when there's a clinical concern for an incomplete removal of the placenta, again, after delivery, we have to evaluate the placenta for any missing pieces or chunks. If there was a history for a difficult or overly forceful delivery of the placenta, things like that would raise our concern for retained products, then we have to consider removal of said products. Recognize that up to about 10% of cases of postpartum hemorrhage are from 
retain products, so something we need to consider. And while this is not a routine procedure done by emergency medicine physician, the manual removal of products of conception simply by digital scraping can be quite effective. And certainly something you should consider in cases where uteronatiny has been addressed and or there's a high risk or concern for retained products. All right, that is it for this podcast. That's it for uterine bleeding. Let's hit our summary before we close. So we opened sort of talking about some of the tools at our disposal. Most notably, we're using hormone therapies here, as well as blood and blood products, TXA. And then later in the podcast, we talked about the uterine tonic agents for the postpartum patient. We talked a little bit about anatomy, the ways to think about these patients and general approach, including consideration of the patient's age, if this is the first presentation for a coagulopathy in a patient, or if they may be using anticoagulant agents, as well as some anatomic considerations such as fibroids. We then went on to talk about the treatment and stabilization of the hemodynamically unstable non-pregnant uterine bleeder. In these cases, obviously, we do what we do. We resuscitate. We get two large bore IVs. We address them in a CAB fashion. We give them blood and blood products in a one-to-one-to-one fashion. And we talked some about source control here, which includes interventions such as uterine tamponade with a 30cc Foley and some medications that we can use here as well, including estrogen in the United States, Premarin, and possibly TXA. In the hemodynamically stable patient, we have some time to think, discuss it with our OBGYN colleagues, but generally we're starting OCPs here. Then we went on to talk about the postpartum patient, talking about causes for the bleeding here, the number one being postpartum uterine atony, but also consideration for lacerations and retained products of conception. In these patients, we are starting with some non-invasive standard things that we do, such as transabdominal uterine massage. We then dove into the different uterine tonic meds we can use, including oxytocin, carboprost, methyl ergonovine, and then an agent, transexamic acid, which is near and dear to my heart. We talked a little bit at the end there about source control and hemorrhage control via things like uterine packing, uterine tamponade, repair of lacerations, and removal of retained products of conception. And that's about it. There's not a whole lot to digest there. Know this stuff, know it well, review it a couple times, know your meds and know your dosings because when the sick patient comes in and when the shit hits the fan, you gotta be ready to go. Hope you learned a lot. Thanks for listening. That's all for the Down ECM podcast for now. If you like what you hear, please hop over to iTunes, throw us some stars, give us a review. It really, really helps us. Also, we would love to hear your ideas about how we can make the podcast better, any topics you like to cover, anything that you think would help your listening experience. You can check out more of what we have to offer at our blog, downeastem.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at downeastem. Until next time.